Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wednesdays with Wheels. Listen, mine. I'm so excited about this podcast. I'm, I'm. I have my good friend Sheriff Todd Baxter with us. Sheriff, how are you today? I am doing great. Great to be with you, man. This is exciting. Thank you. This is awesome. By the way, you, you, you've jumped into the world of podcasting yourself. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your podcast before we get into some other things. You know, we're always looking for ways to communicate with the public. You know, we're on social media. We do as many media releases as possible. I'm out in the community as much as possible. But uh, as you identified way before me, uh, these young people are communicating and listening. It's flexible to hear a good story and to get really in-depth, like hopefully we do tonight. And uh, so we created one called Behind the Badge, and it's designed to bring the community behind the, the badge and see who works in the sheriff's office, what great deputies we have, the job description they have, or people that interact with us. Uh, and help us, you know. So behind the badge is the name of the podcast. It's on the sheriff's website, and uh, it's on all the current events uh, to get to it. And it's just another great way to communicate with the public. And can you get that? So can you get that through like Apple Podcasts and stuff like that? Where exactly Spotify, uh, Apple, yep. Or you can go to right to the Monroe County website and pick any of the uh, applications to get you to it. How how many episodes are you into the podcast? How many episodes have you done? So we've uh, we're into our, I think our fifth one will air tomorrow uh, or th- excuse me Friday and uh, we have two in the queue we've done two in stock those in, in, in case you know we have a bad week or something like that and we can't uh, record uh, so I actually done seven uh, the first one was a little nerve wracking now I'm just having a ball I look forward to them and uh, the other day I had a Navy SEAL uh, on there I spent 30 years in the U.S. Navy SEAL SEAL Team Six uh, the week before that I had the uh, Dr. Tisha Smith that talks about our medical assisted treatment inside the jail and what we're doing with people that are suffering from addiction when they're incarcerated. And so it's a whole variety, let alone a good deputy on there. Just talk about what they do, you know, what kind of deal or what it's like to take jobs on a midnight shift. Uh, we're just trying to share people what's behind that badge and who we are. That's awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to check that podcast. I'm a big, I love, not only do I have my Thank own you. podcast, but I just love listening to podcasts. Uh, it's the, it's the new, uh, the new medium, right? Uh, how we reach people. Uh, so Sheriff, I, I, listen, they sent me over your bio and it is it is an incredible bio. Uh, over 22 years in law enforcement if I if I read that correctly. So let's let's start back at the beginning. Um, first of all, was law enforcement always something that you wanted to go into? No, not at all. My wife Mary and, and I both grew up in the city of Rochester, went to Jefferson High School. I really, Wheels had no sense of direction leaving high school, so I joined the Army, uh, and and I went to see, scored high enough on a test, here's your options you could do in the Army. I seen a military police officer with a canine, with a dog, and I asked the recruiter if I could do that, and of course they said, yes, you could do that. Well, it's been 37 years now, I never had a dog, by the way, but uh, we'll talk about Army recruiters later, what they sell you. But I went into the military police, police corps of the Army, and I started hanging out with a bunch of young people that always wanted to be cops. And uh, they got me really hooked on the idea. And when I left the Army after three years, I took my first civil service test with the city police department and uh, was lucky to get hired off my first test, which was an absolute blessing. And it got me into a career that I love, obviously, to this day. So talk to me about the first. We'll get into your military and all of that stuff because there's so much to unpack here. But uh, talk to me about the first time you you uh, put on the uniform as a, as a police officer. And I'm sure you remember maybe the first call you went out on. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first time I put on a uniform, the blue uniform, because when you go to the academy, you wear a gray uniform and 
And uh, the first time putting on those shiny blues, you know, and looking in the mirror, it was, it was actually intimidating. Uh, you had all the training. They give you 10 months of tra training and actually have that authority and be a police officer with all that decision you have to make in a split second. Uh, it can be really overwhelming the first few days and months uh, until you get a little more comfortable. And then it takes years to truly get comfortable to be a cop for all the things they have to experience in a moment's notice. Uh, my first job by myself, so after I left field training, you know, in the car for the first time by yourself, no partner next to you, they sit with you for four months to train you. Uh, you know, I, I was going to a domestic up on Dewey Avenue around Stone, uh, just short of the Grease Line. And uh, this is before phones, this is before Google Maps, and uh, I couldn't find the street, you know, and I was the closest car, but I, I think the car coming from three miles away was going to beat me there. So I started panicking because I couldn't even find the house. Uh, you know, we're going to a guide box and getting your maps out. And, uh, it was so far up on, on Dewey Avenue towards the, the northern border. It was like, uh, so I still remember that stretch. That's awesome. So like, I'll never know less and look up the map before you start driving there and, and you get there a lot quicker. So that was my, that's my embarrassing story. You know, I, I couldn't even find the house in the first call. I was kind of like lost. That's, uh, they, the new guys, the new guys out there on the, on the street probably don't realize technology wise how, how easily they have it, right? With the technology and it, pops up on their screen and and there you go. It'll even give you a history of the jobs maybe at that, that assignment. Uh, you know, the idea is in training now, we take those computers and their cell phones away from intentionally sometimes and make them do it the old fashioned way. Should technology crash or electric crash do the old fashioned way police work because we can't say we can't go because the technology's out there. That's, that's, uh, that's uh, it's amazing to see how far we've come. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was you, your military experience. You had said to, you would said that that's how you really uh, got your start there. So, uh, U.S. Army, I believe, right? Yes, sir. And what what you were there for three years? Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, military service. So sure. So I uh, right out of high school, uh, actually, when my senior year, I knew I wasn't going to go to college. I wasn't really interested at that moment. And uh, so I went down and joined the Army uh, early. And during February, my senior year, September, I wanted that whole summer off thing. Uh, and in September, I went down to Fort McClellan, uh, spent uh, 10 months in Fort McClellan, learned how to be a soldier and learned how to be a military police officer. And then my first tour was in Korea. I spent a year in, in Korea as a military police officer. And then uh, two years at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. On the outside of the walls, I wasn't in the prison. Don't start any rumors. Uh, but I was a military police officer at Fort Leavenworth. And uh, it was a great career. I left the, the Army after three years of active duty. That was my tour. That was my hitch, fuel. And then I spent another 19 years in the reserve. So I actually had 22 years of service. And I retired in 2000. That's awesome. We are having a little bit of uh, – you're freezing up a little bit there. So if I – if I pause before I ask you the next question, it's only because I'm not sure sometimes the camera freezes and I'm not sure if you're done giving your answer. So I don't want to step on you. Um, Sounds great. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how um, uh, being a police officer for the, as many years as you've done, it has, has changed over the years. Um, we, we touched on technology a little bit, but can you just touch on some of the other avenues that it might have changed a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, technology is obviously the one we're always trying to keep up with and use to our advantage, but uh, bad guys use it to their advantage, right? And so technology is always a moving target. Uh, calls for service, the types of calls for service, you know, 
the uh, you know shortly uh, about the time I was becoming a police officer, right before we started deinstitutionalizing de health hospitals, and at certain points we didn't have uh, you know certain systems set up in the community for them. So police officers started responding to a whole lot more mental health calls, uh, and people that are going through a mental health crisis. Uh, those have really, really increased uh, over the years. You know, the drug epidemic, when I was a young cop, it was crack cocaine. And I worked at Lake Lyle neighborhood. And uh, now with the opioid epidemic, it's really gone to a whole new level. And, and with, with death, you know, with overdoses and things like that. Uh, and, and then what they're expecting of police officers, you know, the calls that we go to. I said today to a reporter, you know, people have become in our culture addicted to 911. Uh, they call 911 for every every need they have. We're the quickest community government group to get there. And then we're expecting police officers to solve a lot of problems we're really not designed, designed to solve, but we go to them. And I got some funny stories I've been to call through my career, but uh, other ones that maybe we shouldn't be going to, you know, so, but there's still an expectation. Someone eight times is falling on police more and more every day. Can you uh, share maybe some of those funny stories that you've been called to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the, one of the funniest, I still remember this day is, uh, you know, I, I was sitting at uh, Dewey and Emerson writing a report right in the middle of that crazy intersection, if you've ever been through there. And uh, a guy comes walking up with a box in his hand. This is the midnight shift, so I'm startled. I should have seen him coming for officer safety. And he's got a box and he's trying to push it through the window. He doesn't speak English. And uh, and in the box is a duck. He found a duck and he's trying to give me this live duck because <laughs> that's what you do. You get police. They solve all the world's problems, right? Uh, another one, uh, a gentleman that uh, stole a cow, a calf, a small cow, uh, and, and let it go at Fulton and Ravine in the middle of the city of Rochester. And I was driving along in a midnight shift and stumbled upon. I thought it was, uh, it was probably 3 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. I thought I was seeing things because I'm staring at Fulton and Ravine, a cow, which you normally don't expect in the middle of the city. So, uh, you know, those types of calls. You know, the calls, uh, the calls every cop wants to go to is, is the naked lady call. You get tons of those on the midnight shift, you know, you know, a lady out of like, you know, running around the neighborhood with no clothes on, you know, just weird stuff. People have no idea what these cops see and, and do on a daily basis, uh, let alone the tragedy and, and the other stuff you have to do with. But yeah, there's a lot of humor in the job too. Yeah. Sher uh, Sheriff, it's interesting you, so we talked about the humor and the, the, some of the fun calls you go on, but you just mentioned the tragedy that you have to uh, sometimes see and deal with how do how do you uh, and now as sheriff and overseeing a, a big department how do you manage uh, knowing when some of your force maybe a guy is seen too much and and how do you how do you deal with that yeah and, and we do you know you know you talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and a lot of people think of one damn crisis incident and we really got to work with that person. We do in those situations, but it's the cumulative stress that someone will go through post-traumatic stress. And uh, what we do is try and first acknowledge that the stress disorder occurs in every good human being. We all come under stress and we treat it different and handle it different. Uh, but I, I try and get rid of the D word. It's not a disorder, although by clinically it is. But I think people ought to understand that if they're under extreme stress over a long haul, uh, it's going to affect them emotionally. It's going to affect their spirit. It's going to affect their body. Uh, and first acknowledge it's okay. So we try and get rid of the disorder word and say, you know what, this is part of our job. So let's acknowledge it so we can address it. And then peer counseling, you know, we have a, a ton of deputies that have been trained as peer counselors so they can do one-on-ones. And, and of course we uh, have contracts with medical staff professionals that can help us through those emotional problems. Uh, it's real in our job. You know, we always, 
people won't, I've had 12 of my friends here in Monroe County shot since I've been a cop from 1987, 12 of my friends. Uh, I've had way more than that friend commit suicide and, and take their own life. And uh, an academy classmate of mine. And, uh, you know, so we really, it's a real, real problem in our profession. Uh, it's a problem in our society right now as a whole. And, and first we got to acknowledge, I think stress is a normal thing. And then and then you can challenge and, and take on that that uh, that issue as opposed to turning it away and compartmentalize it inside your brain to a point you have no other alternative you think is. And since we're, we're on this topic, let's talk about, we're talking about the stress that an officer can be under, but um, I've had the pleasure of meeting your lovely wife several times. Uh, and she actually, she's the rock star of your family because she Absolutely. set up this, this broadcast for us <laughs> on your end and, and did a phenomenal job. But uh, talk to me a little bit about, because um, I'm sure you've had conversations with her and other families of officers. Talk to me about a little bit about the stress that they can go through. And, and uh, uh, you know, sometimes your loved one walks out the door and you with the way things are, especially today, you really have to be worried uh, for them. Yeah, this thing called vicarious trauma, right? So uh, whatever we experience, we turn that over to someone that's close to us, whatever walk of life you're in. Uh, if you're a social worker and you're dealing with negative, negative all the time, you, you absorb that. Uh, and family members of police officers definitely absorb that, especially if a police officer that can't communicate or refuses to communicate with their family, yet they're given that vicarious trauma, that stress. Uh, so it's very important that you work together as a team. It's very important you keep a sense of humor, you stay humble, uh, you keep grounded. It is very important that you talk about the stress. We've had some terrible stress in our house in the last couple of weeks. You know, it's been a difficult time just in the Baxter house. And uh, and I think, uh, and I'm willing to fight with anybody, I'm a cop, you know, but at the end of the day, we're also humans and you got to look inside your body and say, hey, we got to take care of this, this heart right here first. And we also got to take care of our wife's heart and, and make sure number one, because at the end of the day, the job's going to disappear. And we're going to be left with hopefully a, a good family and a, a supporting spouse. And if you don't take care of those, uh, you look at a lot of police officer statistics again. A lot of police officers don't have a family at the end of their career, and, and that's that's terrible. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that you just. And I was going to wait till the end of the podcast to do this, but we since you brought a, it's been a, a difficult uh, couple weeks for you guys. We'll talk about it now. Uh, when I announced that I was going to have you on the podcast. I got a lot of private messages saying, ask him how come he's not doing anything about the protests on, uh, you know, shutting down the street and all that stuff. So two-part question here. Talk to me about your role in that, okay? Because I think that needs to be uh, explained to people. And then when you do get some uh, backlash because people don't understand uh, necessarily the job or how – how you have to go about things. How do you deal with that? How does your family deal with that? Because you are a public figure. And I always say you shouldn't, unless you know the man, you shouldn't judge the man. We can all armchair quarterback, right? Absolutely easy. We can mm -hmm. all armchair quarterback. I can sit here in my home in Greece and say, uh, this should be done this way or that should be done that way. But I'm not making those decisions at the time. I'm not uh, in charge of those things. So explain to me how you deal with that and how your family deals with it and talk about that situation with the, the protests. 
Sure. So it's a it's the protests are uh, you know it's a first amendment first amendment right right. So everybody has a right to protest. I would fight and die for that. I, I served in the army for that right. Uh, let alone all our other constitutional rights. It's the second amendment. You know the fourth amendment. Uh, I don't believe police officers come in people's houses without a search warrant unless invited or other reasons. Right. I love our constitution. On the other side of the constitution is other other people's rights. So the people. That are protesting about rights if they're trying to go and pick up their children from daycare or they're trying to go to the hospital visit a loved one they might be in the hospital uh, so those are always competing weights if you will uh, on rights especially when it comes to protests right um the other part of that you know the one that specifically i think someone called me a uh, ballish baxter i think in one of your your facebook uh, yes uh, i can't wait to meet the guy uh, that's me uh you know uh you know listen i'm not here to throw another police department on the bus i love leron singletary i love the new york state police uh, but I, people also also understand as a sheriff, although I have jurisdiction through the whole county, I don't walk into someone's areas of responsibility and tell them how to do their police work. That would be inappropriate. It'd be very inappropriate for the sheriff to walk in the Ronicoy and tell Chief Laird, I don't think you should be doing these things or I think you should do these things. Behind the scenes, I'll have all the conversations all day long with my colleagues. And, and But when we leave there, I'll tell them, I got your back. I'm going to support you, whatever you're going to do. Uh, and, and I don't think it's appropriate that the sheriff, though he has jurisdiction, goes into someone's area of responsibility and tells them how to police their town or their city. Uh, and the New York State Police have had control of that, that freeway in the city for 30 years, probably longer than that. It's been their area of responsibility for, for, for many, many years. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I understand people don't understand or I understand that they, they think as an elected sheriff, I should come over and take over because uh, I have that right or that authority. Uh, but I, I think people would be very confused if I stood up and said, I don't support Laurent Singletary. I don't support uh, this captain from the New York State Police. Think about the chaos and confusion that really would occur if we're not working as close as possible on one accord. Uh, same thing, you know, if it's in my area of responsibility, I didn't see any of these people call me uh, when we had protests out in Hilton. And because of my decisions that I did in Hilton, you know, protesters are ending up in front of my house. Uh, you know, it's funny these people didn't call me and say, hey, by the way, uh, we appreciate you. So I'm not a political figure. Uh, let's be quite frank. I love being a sheriff. I love being, uh, I, it's a phenomenal opportunity. Let's talk about the jail. Let's talk about the rope patrol. Uh, but with that being said, I'm not tied to this title by any means. Uh, I don't do this for a title by any means. And, uh, you know, I'm going to make decisions what I think is best and what I think is right every time. And some are going to agree, some are disagree, but I'm not going to do it for political reasons. I'm not going to do it because of intimidation or I'm not going to do it because someone's bad mouthing me on Facebook. Uh, I can't do that. We have to stay focused on law and order or criminal justice and, and, and serving everybody, even people we don't you know agree with. You know, my, my people stand in line and have people go by them and not have the police. And uh, yet we stand in line as professionals sometimes because I think that's what we should do. Other times I take enforcement action and uh, we'll always continue to do that. I'm going to make the best decisions I can, but I hear me loud and clear. I'm not making decisions based on any political ideology because uh, we'll be dangerous. I'm eventually going to make a bad decision because of politics or intimidation. I ain't got time for it and I, I will never police like that. I'll, I'll police the way I think is best and lead my troops the way I think is best. Uh, but it, it's really an easy saying, you know, well, why don't you go in there and take over? Uh, think of the chaos if I went into Fairport and took over for, uh, for for the chief of police at Fairport every time they have the music fest. I don't think you should run a music fest like that. I'm the sheriff. I'm coming in. Uh, that's almost, uh, that's, it's even hard to say because it would be almost impossible to do. Uh, just think of the chaos that would occur after that. So, again, we have behind the scenes conversations. I give my input, uh, you know, but uh, it's their area of responsibility. And I'm here to support them as the Mono County Sheriff with my manpower and my resources. That's it. That's uh, the you. Listen, I. 
I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, this tool that we're talking on right now is great, Facebook and everything, but it gives people the ability to sit behind their keyboard and oh just God, yeah. say things and and, and uh, project things <laughs> onto someone that they don't oh. even know. Uh, uh, in fact, when that uh, gentleman and uh, I'm not even, I don't know his name, so I'm not going to say it, but even if I did know his name, I wouldn't say it because I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of, of that. But when he posted that, um, I thought to myself, because I know you as, as uh, Todd Baxter, just a great guy, you know, and I understand a lot of people don't know you on that level. So I get it that they just see little sound bites and snippets on the news and whatever. I understand it. But until you actually know a man's character and his personality and all of that that goes along with the job, then you can then you can really make judgments. And, you know, but until then, if you're just reading something in the newspaper, you know, you could read that any way you want. You know, I read it one way. You read it one way. Somewhere in the middle is is actually how it happened. Right. And, and so I, I always say, we'll, no, I, I always say, you know, first of all, call me. Some of these people making comments on social media, they know me, you know, and they didn't offer a phone call first and say, hey, what are you doing? Or why aren't you doing, you know, and and that's 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 a little offensive. If you know me, call me. And, and at the end of the day. If you disagree with me, blast me. I'm good. It, but at least how about a courtesy call in the first freaking place? I mean, let's let's have communication. Let's talk in social media. Those those keyboard warriors. Yeah, they're pretty amazing people, man. I, I laugh at someone like, but, you know, my wife's going out and getting a Ballas Baxter shirt right now for me. So, I, you know, at least we got a good nickname out of it. But if that guy knew me and called me, we'd have a conversation. At the end of the day, you might say, I still think you're wrong. Then I appreciate you giving me a chance to explain myself and my decision making or what I'm doing. But uh, how about some courtesy? And then we need more of that in our community. We need more of that in our world. Pick up the phone, call someone, stop with the keyboard warrior stuff and and uh, and acting all tough. At the end of the day, if you don't like me, at least give me a chance to explain and do whatever you want to do. I'm good. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, Sheriff, you send me a Ballas Baxter t-shirt and I'll send you a Wednesdays with Wheels t-shirt, Will. That's awesome. Will. Consider it done. <laughs> what size you take, buddy? Then I'll wear yours, you wear mine, we'll take a picture together. And, uh, there you go. That'll be... <laughs> uh, so let's talk about, well, we're, well, we're on this subject of the protests and, you know, there's been a lot of stuff going on in, yeah. in the, in the, in the, um, in the world and uh the george floyd situation was tragic and sad and uh, sheriff i'll just say this to you i was never more proud to know you than when i saw you uh stand up at uh uh the press conference with the mayor and i thought you struck a great tone you said look i'll never know what it's like to to have to deal with that with what your community deals with but know that I stand with you and know that I understand the pain. So just touch on that. Like what kind of emotions were going through you during that time? Because there was a lot of unrest in the city of Rochester and even in the, in the suburbs. So just touch on that a little bit and uh, we'll have a little bit of a discussion about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I the first press conference we did was the day of, of the riots, if you will, in front of the city public safety building. And and uh, I didn't have a script. I knew I wanted to get up 
and say there was a I, people hijacked that and, and turned it upside down and turned into chaos and turned into looting and and uh, and burning of police cars and uh, you know that was the first thing we had to get out clear. I think is you know people have a right to protest and even march and badmouth the police and the president of the United States. That's our that's our great right. Uh, but someone hijacked and I watched throwing firecrackers into the crowd and and inciting the crowd. And it's called the crowd mentality. We teach this at the academy. You know, the crowd mentality is start to morph from a, a peaceful protest all the way through a riotous situation. There's actually PowerPoints on this. Right. So you actually watch that unfold. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. And the second thing I wanted to say was, you know, this is my city. Although I'm the county sheriff now, I worked 22 years at Rogers Police. Mary and I grew up in the city we both went to selling school together uh, and, and my heart bled for for what was occurring there uh, and, and the other thing I, I was on the phone today with a with a friend of mine an african-american guy about my age he went to school 43 over on mount Reed boulevard uh, as a young african-american kid going to a predominantly white school and he remembers being called the n-word in third grade uh, wheels i can never i'm a white male i can never explain how that feels right i can empathize and try and understand and you know what but also, I think we have to be real that, that there are some real hatred out there in all kinds of directions. I think the sooner we can sit down and have conversations, the sooner we can look at someone that, even if they're antagonizing me as a sheriff, I still invite in my office, come talk to me. What? What are you looking for? That's my job as a leader. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm going to give you everything. It doesn't mean, but man, we just got to have those difficult conversations. And sometimes, and uh, myself in the, the shoes of an African American male, uh, but I can put my shoes in. in, in in my sphere of influence, my feet in my shoes where I got a sphere of influence and try and bridge those gaps, right? And try and build communication. And 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 that two way, it's two ways, very clear. I'm always clear about this. It's police community relations. It's also community police relations. We have to go both directions. Mm -hmm. uh, the community has to start relating to the police and understand who we are and what we do. And yes, we make mistakes, but Jesus, 99% of these guys are great, wonderful cops that will put their life on the line for a total stranger. We have to honor that, you know, it's, it's, you know, we got to understand the community we police and understand the cultures and understand people that are there. And, and then when they were three years old, they were called the N-word. Oh, man, I don't know how that would feel, but I know it's, I know that would probably stick with you for life. So, right. uh, you know, you know, I'm always getting punched in the gut by talking these deep talks with people. And I got punched again this morning. I'm like, wow, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what I respond. And I know that's probably scar tissue you carry the rest of your life. Uh, with you, but uh, at least I can acknowledge it and understand it so I can make better decisions in my future. Um, so another area I wanted to talk while we're on this topic is because I think there's a lot of confusion, Sheriff, as to when people hear the word um, defund the police. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion as to what that would mean, what that might look like. Um, Talk to me on your end, um, your thoughts on that, and and I'm sure you've had uh, conversations behind the scenes with community leaders. But maybe you could clear up for people who don't uh, who don't have a clear understanding of what that might look like. Well, I've been to many many community meetings since uh since May 30th, right, and. Uh, we built coalitions and uh, pastor groups in the city and, and bringing other people from outside the city, youth into those groups uh, so we can communicate and, and understand and build something for the future, not just talk about this time. And I got a couple of those friends. They, they like to be like, defund the police. What are you absolutely nuts? <laughs> I think we've seen it the night of May 30th when no, there was no police officers available to respond to all these. That's what defunding the police truly could look like if that's really what you're saying. Now, if you want to sit down and have a logical conversation with 
with with logic, not emotion, and talk about are, are there certain things that be tax dollars would be better spent somewhere else. As an example, police officers get dispatched to calls for 14 year olds refusing to get out of bed and go to school. I do respond to that call. So is there a better method? Is there more truancy people out there doing dealing with that as opposed to police officers? I'm willing to have those conversations if we sit down and, and then we measure that. Well, how many of those calls are police officers going to? How much does that cost a taxpayer or a police department budget? And if that's so much money, do we give that money to someone else? Maybe they work for the police department, maybe they don't, but they're not a, a highly skilled, highly trained police officer going to that simple call of a 14-year-old refusing to go to school. Because we all know that has about 30 underlying causes why that kid won't get out of bed. It's not just because he don't want to go to school today, right? There's probably a whole a slew of things that are causing that kid not to get out of bed and go to school that day. So maybe a social this whole rhetoric of defund the police, it's a hashtag and we got to get well beyond a hashtag. So I don't want to respond to those questions. If everybody wants to sit down with me and talk about uh, better service providing by the taxpayer dollar with service providers like police departments and other people, uh, I'm willing to have those conversations. There's some calls my cops go to we're not designed to go to, you know, but no one else is going to them because we're addicted to 911 and people call 911 for any social issue they have. And then a cop's going there to try and solve that, which we're not designed to go to. So if you want to sit down and have logical conversations and, and, and actually talk budgets and actually talk where they're, but someone's got to fill that gap uh, because right now the society expects government to show up and usually has a blue uniform and a badge on. That's uh And we've seen deinstitutionalizing Mental health years ago, I use as my prime example, and we just let all these people out without a plan of action. You know how many of those people ended up in the Merle County Jail? Think about that, how many, because there was nowhere else to put people that are having serious issues in their life, and then their criminality is related to their mental health issues. Uh, so I get very frustrated when people say those things without any logic, and, and then it stirs everybody up, and all of a sudden people are going for your budgets, but no one's there to fill the gap, and uh, we got to be very careful about those conversations. Yeah, and that's why I, that's why I asked the question because I. I said to myself, there's no better no better person to ask than someone who deals with uh, budgeting and, and is on the sort of the is on the front lines and dealing with your officers all, all day long. And and uh, trust me, as a guy that's on the radio, we often play those uh, ridiculous. Uh, but that's a that's a great perspective to have. And and like you said, just before you fire something off, sit down and think about it logically and. And but there's nothing wrong with the discussion as long as it comes from a, a good place. Yeah, and a logical place. And right now everybody's emotionally charged. Everybody's fired up. Uh, you know, part of my job as sheriff, you know, people want me to come out swinging and 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 get my own rhetoric going. And you know, I think part of my job description as is, is a sheriff is to calm. Right? Everybody, everybody breathe. Everybody take a step back. Everybody listen to each other. Uh, let's let's see what we can do with this point in time that we're given right now. Uh, and do something positive with it. You know, uh, a young African-American one had letter, yeah, he truly is in fear because of what he's seen on videos and because of what he's been told is not what we should stand for in law enforcement. But same thing, a, that kid should have the opportunity to get in a police car and to go do the ride along with the deputy and see what it takes to pull over a car at three o'clock in the morning and what it takes to walk up that window and understand their perspective uh, when they're going up to. I keep on saying it's not one way, it's both ways. And I'm willing to have those bold conversations. My cop friends yell at me just as much as Ballas Baxter yelled at me, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, you got to stop talking. You got to support the police. I support the police. I love the police. I am a, I am a cop. I did 22 years in the city police department, charge of the SWAT team. I've been in charge of a town police department. I ran for sheriff because I love cops, not because I need a talk. Uh, uh, but it's okay to say, you know what, that kid's in fear of us. 
let's see if we can do something about that because we shouldn't be we shouldn't be we are the servants we will give our life for other people yet people are in fear of us uh that doesn't make any sense and vice versa all right you you've heard a lot you that's your that's your point of view come with me come 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 listen to my point of view come hear my point of view and that's how we build a community uh, or we could just keep on pointing fingers out out and at each other and and you're wrong you're wrong and where are we getting with that it's it's so interesting sheriff that you you just said that because there is this sense in in with social media and i keep going back to social media but with social media that if you if you post a video that might show uh, things one way or you post a video of showing things another way that depending on what way it shows you're either against the cops or you're against the the person that the the wrong might be being done to and i often say to my friends is why can't we see like you just said why can't we see it both ways so that's uh i don't know if we lost sheriff baxter here it appears that his camera might have froze uh so let's see if we can get him back i'm going to text him real quick uh, because i think his camera froze so hold on one second uh um, I might have to have him come back in. Give me one second while we try to get this worked out. The wonders of technology here. I think his camera froze. Oh, there we go. He'll probably be coming back in. We'll wait while we uh, reconnect with the sheriff here. We're interviewing Sheriff Todd Baxter. Um, let's see what happens here. I'm going to remove it and then let him come back in. Sorry about this, ladies and gentlemen. Just bear with us for one second. He's going to reconnect uh, here, and hopefully we'll we'll uh, be able to get this working again. We're having a great conversation with Sheriff Todd Baxter. Uh, we're going to get into some of his other um, things that he's done with uh, the Veterans Outreach Center and uh, and all of that in just a minute. As soon as he reconnects with us, I hope that you guys are enjoying uh, this podcast so far. Uh, and let's see if we can get the sheriff to reconnect. I am not seeing any comments either, so I don't know what's going on with that. Let me pull it up on my phone while we wait for the sheriff to join us again. What's going on here?
We're waiting for the sheriff. Um, technology is great until it's not, right, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, this is what we call filling time, filling space. Um, I'm looking back at some of the comments on the, the broadcast here. Uh, let me see if I can pull up some of these. Let's just see here. Here he comes. Hey, there we are. We're back. Back, sorry. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's something to do with TikTok. Who knows? And a lot of lag time still. I hope I don't lose you again, bud. That's all right. We'll we'll just we'll go with it for as long as we can. If and if we have to have you reconnect, we'll have you reconnect. Here to buy. Um, Thank you. Um so yeah, that but uh, as I was saying just before we lost you, I just don't understand why we can't see both sides of the argument like you were just saying, right? Or both sides of the coin. Um right. I have been accused by some people. Uh and first of all, let me just say being that I am sort of I've been doing radio with Brother Wees for 4 years now, and before that I was just David Maxwell, right? Uh I was just and, I, and I'm still David Maxwell, but now I'm wheels and everybody knows wheels. So when you post something on social media, I've been attacked for being anti-police. Uh, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, uh, Sheriff Baxter and I have had many conversations when he's come into the studio. And, and my cousin is on the Gates uh, police force. And I support the police wholeheartedly. Just let's all come together and just love one another is what I say. Yeah, and, and I couldn't agree more. Listen, uh, I, I love cops. I love – I can't say this enough. I, I There's a reason why I'm sheriff, and I said it earlier. It's because I love cops. And, and there's a reason I went to Greece as a chief because I love cops and I love policing. And and I took over a police department through, through a very tumultuous period. And I got there, and I, I, I analyzed that organization. What, what can we do to bring this place back? back up and I found not money I found not political I found I found 78 great cops still willing to be police officers in, in Greece when they're going through all that turmoil and and that's what that's how you build organizations that's how you build police departments uh, through the people right and uh, but at the end of the day it's also it's also okay I think to sit down and go well what's the community that we're serving think of us and uh, uh, President Obama like him or not and President Obama's uh, task force on policing in the 21st century huge report on this whole community relations thing. Uh, that was obviously published years ago, yet we're still talking about it today. Uh, it shows that sometimes we don't have a lot of fruit at the end of all these these big plans. Uh, so how do we locally at our jurisdiction build up uh, ourselves, our community? And and here's a great point. That that report of President Obama said a word legitimate. If, if people don't think the police department's legitimate, although we have all we have power, we've got powers of arrest and everything else, but if a public doesn't think we're legitimate or doesn't look at us legitimate, then why can't we sit down and go, What? why not? And how do we build that back up? Because we are servants in the community. It doesn't make us weak. It doesn't make us uh, cowtail on anybody. It doesn't make us, you know, turn our back on anybody or not standing for law and order. Uh, but it also makes us understand that there's other people that have different perspectives. And like you said, Wheels, I think if, I think it's more bold to sit down with people that don't agree with you and, and, and yell at you and argue with you. And uh, you leave with maybe just a little better perspective on what they're feeling or they, they appreciate you a little bit more and what my cops are doing for a living. When I explain to people in public, 
face-to-face what cops do for a living. And I explained the other day, a 16-year-old kid was shot in the city of Rochester. Uh, a police officer is trying to provide life-saving. He's sticking fingers in the bullet holes, basically, trying to save the 16-year-old. And then people are over his back with cell cameras, antagonize him. Then people start to realize, like, wow, that's a tough job. And I understand why you're looking for certain legislation. I understand why you're looking for certain things and vice versa. But, man, we're so defensive nowadays and we're so uh, – I can't listen to anybody else's point of view. And I think CNN and Fox News and all these other people have done a fantastic job just pitting us one against the other uh, as opposed to being able to sit down with your brother, even if you don't agree with him, and, and have a conversation. At the end of the day, you might still disagree. Who cares? But at least you tried as a human. Right. Uh, so the, I want to talk about – you did step away from uh, policing for uh, a, a time, and you uh, ran uh, the Veterans uh, Outreach uh, Center. So, talk, because you're a, you're a veteran yourself, yes, sir. And, and uh, so, talk to me a, a little bit about that journey and and what you got from that. And uh, I recently, uh, back when I started this podcast, we're about eleven episodes in now, maybe more. Uh, but when I started, I had Nick Stavanovic. Oh, yeah, Nick, yep. You're, you're familiar with Nick, and Nick's a great guy. Uh, so just talk to me about um, uh, that uh, journey in your life and and how that was for you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I spent 23 years with the city police department and went out to Greece at a very difficult time in, the, in their experience and uh, did four years there, I think, uh, building back up a police department and, and working with them, 78 cops, built it to 101 uh, went through a lot of, trust me, a lot of turmoil uh, to get that place back in the right direction and worked with some wonderful cops and the community loves the police department out there. Uh, but after, you know, so that was 26 years and, 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 you know, there was an opportunity offered to me to go work at a small nonprofit, take care of veterans and, and that are going through some very difficult times. And uh, my wife and I prayed on that. It just seemed like a great idea. Uh, and so I retired, you know, I retired from the Greece police department, went to the veterans outreach center over South Avenue, the oldest nonprofit in America, local nonprofit, taking care of veterans started by Vietnam veterans. We know how we treated those guys and gals when they came home, yet they built this beautiful institution. Um, uh, and I also knew a little bit about the veterans outreach center, the way they took care of the homeless population. I dealt with homeless people all the time in the city of Rochester. Uh, and it was always like a piecemeal band-aid attempt, but the veterans outreach center brought these guys in held them to a high standard, took advantage of their military experience, almost like a drill sergeant sometimes, but also a lot of hugs and held them to a high standard and let them live with them for two years to build those habits back in their lives, whatever they lost since they left the military, whether it's addiction or whether it's some other uh, issue. And, uh, and and that's why I found out like, this is an organization doing it right and helping people get back on track. So it was a great experience wheels, you know, going from a military life since I was 18 in the paramilitary to being a captain in the city and the, and a chief in Greece. And then all of a sudden you're in a nonprofit world, brother, whole different world, a lot of touchy feely, a lot of hugs, a lot of emotions. So I had to learn a whole new leadership style too. Uh, and that was exciting just to learn how to lead in a different environment as opposed to a military paramilitary organization. And those guys are still to this day, I, I save it all aside. We're saving lives at the Veterans Outreach Center. Suicide rate, we talked about that earlier for cops, you know, for veterans, 22 a day, you know, are taking their own life across America. So how do we deal with that stuff? And uh, and that was a great organization. I loved working there. It was a great job. That's uh, you did some you did some amazing work over there too. Uh, we had you in studio several times uh, as uh, with your role uh, with that organization and uh, some of the fundraising efforts you did and the the programs that you uh, helped foster. Yeah, uh, were amazing. I. Uh, uh, I got to go to Nick invited me to uh, 
couple of years ago invited me to I believe it's called the red the um red white and blue ball maybe yeah the stars, stars and stripes yep stars and stripes ball yeah and uh boy what a what a night that was and what an experience that was and they had some folks come up on stage and and talk about how they were helped uh through the different services and it was just a a humbling experience for me you know um uh, I've never had the opportunity, obviously, because of my situation, to serve my country. But to see the sacrifice that some of these uh, young men and women, uh, and now you know some older uh, veterans as well, have gone through, and then the 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 stuff that they dealt with when they came back, and still deal with to this day, even if they've been out of the service for 20, 25 years, they're still dealing with emotional scars and physical scars. So it was a humbling experience and uh, my hat's off to that organization and to what you did for them while you were there. Thank you. You know, it was a great organization to work for. They worked with the homeless population. They worked with uh, job training, job placement. They worked in the Monroe County Jail and took veterans as they're leaving the jail uh, into housing and, and, and took advantage of their in the criminal justice system. Now, how do we get them back into society? And be proud Americans again. Uh, just a good example of, of, you know, we had a 92-year-old uh, World War II veteran come in with his wife, and he was trying to get his benefit packages. He was starting to get the on, onslaught of, of dementia. Uh, World War II veteran. He never showed a sign of post-traumatic stress in his whole life. Uh, and because the dementia was setting on, it started bringing out, and his wife says he just started dreaming. He started screaming in his dreams. He started reflecting. Since World War II, he kept that internalized his whole life and, and raised his family and, and, and retired from his job. And never, never shared, first of all, his experiences, but never had any symptoms of post-traumatic, but he had that internalized his whole life. And then we were able to help a 92-year-old World War II vet deal with those issues, too. And uh, so it's a great organization. And a lot of people, you know, you know, why not the VA? Well, the VA is great. The VA is fantastic. But it's a huge federal institution. Uh, having local, these local nonprofits that can fill the gap sometimes, those services are, are great. And, uh, you know, so it, if, if anybody can support the Veterans Outreach Center, I highly encourage it. There's still veterans coming home. My son's in the ROTC program. He will be a veteran someday. We need to make sure we're here and ready to take care of these people that are willing to give everything, everything for their, their country and our way of life. And, uh, and so we need to support them. And it, it's just amazing to me that you, you were talking there about the 92 year old veteran and how he, he, uh, was able to keep all that stuff in, but then of course, as the dementia sets in and the 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 walls break down, you know, he he starts showing signs of it. But you, he was trying to get his his benefit package. You said, and uh, it's amazing to me that some of these veterans still have to fight for that stuff, right? And uh, because they they fought for our country, it should just be given to them. You the the red tape should go away. They just right. give them what they need. Hand it over. It's it, if we're going to serve anybody, right? If we're going to take care of any social service or or any uh, giveaway programs from the federal government. Here's the problem. I'll, I'll get on my soapbox for a second. I got on the post-traumatic stress disorder one. Uh, the other one is, you know, the Department of Defense and the Veterans Administration. We got two huge, a lot of money spent on tax dollars, huge government agencies uh, doing two different things, right? So I truly believe if we ever got to the point that we could have one service uh, provider. So it, you go into DOD, you go into the Department of Defense, you raise your right hand, you serve your country. Well, the Department of Defense takes care of you when leave when you leave service. 
a lot of the breakdown comes from two huge federal bureaucracies and you lose records when you're going from point A to point B. So you're a DOD property now and then when you leave the military, your VA property, that's a whole new bureaucracy, a huge bureaucracy trying to talk to each other and serve people. Uh, I, I truly believe that the Department of Defense will be responsible for taking care of people when they discharge from the military. And if we make it that simple, uh, at least you'll have one federal bureaucracy, both taking them in, having them serve, and also taking care of them and their families after service. Uh, I think that's where a lot of the breakdown occurs. And I pushed for that a couple of times in Albany. Obviously, I got nowhere. I'm a nobody in the Veterans Outreach Center. But I always say that, you know, if we had one, the DOD brings you in, they might even break you while you're in there. They should take care of you when you leave. It shouldn't be another federal bureaucracy. Yeah, Sheriff, you know, the, the, the problem with what you're saying is you speak too much sense, my friend. <laughs> you talk well, too much sense. And like we talked about our friends with the, the keyboard warriors, it's easier said than done sometimes. I understand that. It, it sounds logical, but boy, you're talking about institutions. You're talking about egos. You're talking about billion-dollar budgets, and no one wants to give up that power, that's for sure. Yeah. So now I want to step into your, your – your, we've talked about it a little bit, but I, I have a couple questions now that you're sheriff. Uh, my first question would be, can you give me a cool story or a – maybe a, a memory since you've become sheriff that sticks out in your, your mind uh, about being sheriff, something that you got to do mm -hmm. in the role of sheriff that, uh, that you could share with us. Yeah, I think uh, first, you know, I, I've never been a politician. People think I am, uh, you know, and I had to run for political office, uh, had a tough race and, and just winning, you know, going running. Uh, you like politicians or not, or you like your assemblyman, your senator, whoever, uh, your town supervisor, boy, it's it's quite a sacrifice to run for for uh, a a seat, and it's quite a sacrifice in the family, uh, to, and then run for a county seat where you gotta you know you gotta appease a lot of people from Hamlin to Hilton to all the way up to Honeyhill Falls and everything in between. Uh, that was that was an experience, man, and I loved it. I was I was part of the democratic system. Uh, and, and I was fighting for votes and people to believe in me. Uh, and, and we can't under, we, we underestimate that process that, you know, when I pray I'm not one, uh, I'm not making decisions for political reasons, but the fact is you go through a political process. So that's one, you know, standing up on that stage and going, holy crap. And in my pocket, I had two speeches. I had, I had both speeches written. I didn't know I was going to win. I, I, I took on a good man. Uh, that was running a halfway, you know, I think a good a sheriff's office, right? And, you know, he wasn't corrupt there uh, and, and to be, and, but I wanted the job. I think there's so much I could do as sheriff. And and, and so that's why I ran. Uh, but I went in that, that night. No one knows. It. I had two speeches in my pocket. You know, there was, there was one, it was a good run. And it was one, hi, I can't believe I won. This is awesome. Uh, you know, that's one. Two, you know, the things we've done at the jail, everybody thinks law enforcement, they, they think the road patrol, love my deputies. You know, those guys are phenomenal. We had their scuba team has been out in Lake Ontario, a mile and a half out in Lake Ontario for, I think our, we're on our 12th day for a gentleman that drowned out there. Those are heroic, great people. But in, in the court bureau and the civil bureau, but I look at the jail, you know, it's such a, it's a unique part of law enforcement that as sheriff, uh, I have that, that police chiefs don't have. Uh, and, you know, I got in that jail and I got to know who those jail deputies were. That's the first place I stopped. It was, I think, 12.02 on January 1st. Uh, I stopped in the jail and walked the jail halls, and I said, I appreciate what you guys do for a living. I couldn't imagine. I've never done it, uh, but I will support what you do. And then to learn what we could do while we're in the jail, not only with the deputies, but with the inmates, and getting those guys to work and making them work while they're in jail, but also give them a sense of work and give them some money in their pocket when they leave that they earned. I'm not giving it to them. 
uh, I think that's been the most interesting thing is 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 jailing, right? And do what what we could do with people incarcerated and appreciate the deputies that work in that difficult environment. Uh, it's 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 all really one environment. Uh, you know, we had a horrific homicide early in my career in in, in Hamlin, uh, a double murder of, of two young kids. And uh, you know, the deputies did a fantastic job. I was so impressed at how fast they solved that. We had that we had that crime solved, convicted, and the in the in the suspect went to New York State Prison. I think within nine months. Uh, from a case that we had nothing. It was a burned out car when we got there. Uh, so these are just, it, it just goes on and on. I can talk all day long. There's not one thing. This, you can understand why I love being a, a sheriff. I mean, these are wonderful people doing wonderful jobs all day long. And and most of the times I look at them and go, I don't even know why I come to work. You guys are firing all cylinders. You guys do it. And uh, it's amazing to watch and be able, be able to say I lead it. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's awesome. And uh, let's talk about the, the, uh, um, jail for just a little bit sure. um, i'm interested to know with covid and everything that's going on with that and even even your road patrol guys how they're how things have changed maybe procedurally uh because of covid and can you touch on that a little bit as to how you've had to adapt and and change some things around because of keeping your officer safe but also keeping the uh, community safe and the people that you serve. <clears throat> so our first priority was uh, keeping our staff as safe as possible, right? Safe from the COVID virus. Uh, we did projections internally. We started manpower studying. If this, you know, back in March, think about it, we thought the whole world was going in into chaos, right? So we started predicting, what if we lost 30% of our workforce in the jail? What if we lost 50% of our workforce on the road to COVID? Not maybe death, but they're out quarantined for 14 days and, and going through the virus. So we were doing mass planning of what would we do if we had to go to 12 hour shifts? How do we use uh, other deputies from other jurisdictions, uh, maybe coming in to support the Monroe County Sheriff's Office? That's part of our job to pre-plan all that. Uh, and then, you know, so we did all that. Then think about, you know, the jail, such a tight knit environment. Although I got 700 inmates at that time inside that jail, inside walls, uh, it wasn't really the inmates I was so scared about bringing COVID into the experience, but it was the 200 deputies that come in the doors on three shifts, you know, 24 hours a day and, and all the medical staff and the dental staff and the pastors that were coming in, visitations of people coming to visit their loved ones when they're incarcerated. Uh, so we, we, we went so hard on the jail. It was amazing. My staff, again, incredible. I challenged them with a look at no dollar amount. I'll pay for this later in the budget. Uh, no piece of equipment we're going to spare. We do not need this pandemic inside the jail. It would be chaos. To date, we've only had two cases of COVID uh, with inmates inside that jail, and that's statistically almost impossible. Uh, but I give my staff credit. They came with a 14-day quarantine period where everybody coming to the Monroe County Jail will be screened coming through the door. If you're going to be there for one day or two years, you're going to be quarantined and isolated for 14 days. They're in a, a pod together, so they're not in like isolation by themselves, but you will be monitored every day while you're in there, and we're going to look for that 14-day incubation period of COVID. That was their idea. They came up with that. Uh, we stopped visitations in the jail faster than almost anybody else in, in New York State. And that was, a, you know, again, you talk politics, that's a political hit when you tell people you're not going to be able to come into jail and visit your loved one. Uh, but we thought that was the most important thing to do, stop visitations. And then you had to communicate that to 700 uh, inmates that love seeing their family members. It's the one thing they got to look forward to. And we're like, hey, we're going to turn this off for a few months. And, and then you got to manage those those people inside the jail to make them understand why we're doing that for their own security and safety. Uh, that's how weird this thing was. And, you know, a lot of people don't know we're, we're, we're setting up, you know, what would the sheriff's office do is, God forbid, we had mass deaths in Monroe County. 
you know, what would the sheriff's office be responsible for uh, in, in those mass deaths that everybody was predicting we may or may not have? We didn't know. This is brand new. It's our first pandemic. I don't know about you, Wheels, but I'm 50-some years old. It's my first pandemic. Uh, so we were planning worst-case scenarios that we should be doing. Uh, thank God most of them didn't come to fruition. Uh, but the idea is, you know, all those things were very unique. My staff, again, fired on all cylinders. They were doing jobs that we never believed the cops would ever do in our society. Uh, it's been pretty, it's been pretty amazing. And it also wore us out. We're tired, you know, we're tired of the masking. We're tired of, of COVID complaints. We're tired of the, the executive orders changing every three days and trying to keep up with those and educate the public. But it's the world we live in and it's part of our job description. We'll just keep on doing it. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't even think of the, the aspect of having to tell the inmates that they couldn't have visitors, right? And you're already taking now, whatever they're in there for, it's a case by case situation, right? So, uh, but, and you can say, well, they made their decision. So that's why they're in there and they did wrong. So that's why they're in there. But we all want some sort of human contact. Yeah, we're with, human creatures with our families, right? right? So, no matter what they've done, it's still a shock to them not being able to see family members. So, I applaud you for what you did, but I uh, I can also imagine what a tough job that must have been and the anger that must have festered up inside the jail once you made that decision. So it's- sure, uh, and, and I'm not weak on crime. You know, you, you do your crime, you're convicted of a crime, do your time, but we can do things while you're in custody. I talked about that earlier, make you better before you leave so you don't come back. I don't want you back in our jail. It's very expensive for you as a taxpayer and, and we don't want them to repeat victimizing people out there in society. But the point is you did your crime and we can be hard on those people and say, uh, well, who cares about visitation? They have a mother somewhere, right? They have a kid somewhere that has the same affection you have for your family and your loved ones. So you can talk about the criminal that's ended up incarcerated, but we got to think about their loved ones that are dying to hug, hold, or see at least face-to-face uh, -to -face their loved one that may have made some stupid mistakes in their life and, and victimized other people. Yeah, they're, they're, they should be incarcerated and the judge determined that. But they still have a loved one out there that this, their heart bleeds and and uh, and and having that contact. So if, if you're looking at it from two different perspectives, again, also look at it from the loved one, the mother or the wife or the the kids uh, of someone that's incarcerated. So you br you brought up a, a great point, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about because uh, Susan Dietor told me that you are uh, Billy's wife told me that you are a, a music guy and that you love your music. So we're I want to talk to you a little bit about music and and what kind of music you like and all that kind of stuff. But you did bring up one point that I wanted to ask you about, which was uh, sort of doing things with these uh, these inmates while they're incarcerated to make them better human beings so that they don't come back. You don't want to see them again. Uh, and the the there are repeat offenders, and I'm sure you've come across many of those in your day. Uh, and uh, but talk about some of the things that some of the programs that are within the jail to help these inmates uh, as they uh, go back out into society at some point. Sure. Well, a couple of things. First of all, let's be very clear. There's some bad people in that jail. And I truly believe they don't deserve to walk in society again. They're rapists. Sure. They're murder suspects. Right. And then there's a lot of people in the jail, like I said, with mental health issues. And how are we dealing with their mental health issues and how are we connecting them to mental health services when they leave so they don't end back up in the jail? Their criminality may be related to their mental health issues. Uh, there's people that are in addicted states. They're addicted to the different drugs, in particular opioids nowadays, uh, And while I got them in jail. So I challenged my staff 
Uh, let's, you know, most people are familiar with the Betty Ford Clinic, at least older people are, right? It was, it was uh, the gold standard, right? It was the gold standard for inpatient treatment of, of addiction. I said, look at, I got what everybody dreams of. Every mother that has a kid that's addicted, and we know the statistics. We lost a couple of years ago, we lost 220 people in Monroe County to an addiction, death, body bags, right? Uh, and, and the gold standard was a 30-day inpatient bed somewhere. If I can only get my kid 30 days inpatient. I said, I, I challenged my staff, look at, we got some of these addicted people for 90 days, 180 days, up to a year. The judge is sentenced to them us, and they're still addicted. Let's build the Betty Ford Clinic inside the Monroe County Jail and give these people the best chance on that addictive state before they leave. A lot of reasons why we should do that. One, they're humans, and we should try and take care of them while they're in, inside the jail. Two, they're committing crimes, so that means there's victims outside the walls of the jail. So if they leave an addicted state, they're still going to go out and commit crimes and victimize other people. And three, it's a very expensive proposition to hold someone in jail, you know, minimum $130 a night. Uh, so if I can make everybody happy by trying to solve some of those problems that people are having in addiction. In addiction. Uh, so we built the medical assisted therapy treatment wing of the Monroe County Jail. I have medical staff coming in and treating addiction comprehensively, holistically, and while they're in the jail because we have the best opportunity to, to solve some of those issues. And then the other one we built not too long ago was called the Star Academy, and that was all about st strategic transformation. So if we have 10 guys, I didn't care about the number, we have 100 guys inside that jail and they truly want to change their life, what do we do with them in there? And, and it's a six-month intense academy they go through. So that's why we call it an academy. So we take them out of the general population. We put them in this work environment. And for the first three months, they go through as a cohort and they work together. And they work on their mental health. They work on their anger management. They work on their family issues. Uh, they work on themselves as a person. And the second three months, they work on job training. And here's the key, job placement. And we get them to work. COVID threw a cur curveball in this, but get them to work in those jobs while they're still in custody. As the sheriff by law, I'm allowed to put an ankle monitor on them, low-risk people, and put them out into the workforce and go to the carpenter union shop and actually pound some nails and earn some money. And now while you're in jail, you're earning the money. It's your sweat, but you're paying off that fine you owe New York State for your driver's license. You're paying off that child you know, custody uh, money you owe the family court. So when you leave jail, not only do you have a good job, you've already been working there, but you also leave with some of those burdens that aren't hanging on your back as you walk out saying, I owe these people money. I owe those people money. Uh, and we're trying to build that system for the people who want to change their life. And I told my staff, you know, you might get 30 guys to go in this and 10 might hold on and 20 might go, get out of here. I'm not going to do all this work because those guys get up at 530 every morning. They work out first before they eat breakfast. Uh, they go to breakfast. They go to job training, job placement. It's an intense facility we have and we're working. Them. And uh, and uh yeah, I tell you what, the other day I looked at one of those star uh, inmates and he says, uh, next Friday I get my New York State driver's license and I paid for it. I paid my fines and I'm paying for it. So he's leaving with a New York State driver's license. You and I and everybody else takes that for advantage. Uh, he's leaving with something he's probably never had in his life and he paid for it himself by money he earned. Uh, not, I didn't give him anything. We gave him the opportunity to let him earn it and he paid off his fines. And that's what we're trying to do. You know, and again, there's bad people in the jail. They can go break big rocks into little rocks the rest of their life. Murderers, rapists, domestic abusers. But there's sure. also people that have done stupid mistakes in their life that, hey, let's get you on a path when you leave here that's path of success uh, so you, you don't come back. I, I tell them, I tell them all the time, I love you, man. I don't want you back, though. <laughs> I don't yeah, know right? Uh, right. It is interesting because I've heard so many stories of guys that, guys and girls that get out of, of, of jail or, and out of the system. And, but then they have no, they weren't given direction. Right. So you just kind of throw them out there and say, well, you've got to go get a job, but sometimes it's hard for them to get a job with this uh, record hanging around their neck. 
So uh, to see that you're doing something to help them uh, at least get a foot forward or a foot in the door is is great. And uh, I commend you for that. You know, wheels were years ago, they came up with this uh, program, Check the Box. So if we eliminated Check the which meant you had a felony conviction, you had to put it on a job application, you know, yeah. and, and they took that away. So that was going to fix that problem. Well, Google replaced that. All I could do is will your name. I run your name. I can find out if you've been arrested for a felony, right? I can find out you've been incarcerated inside the Monroe County Jail. It's public records. Uh, so my job, I think, is to place them in those jobs where they're not some ex-con showing up filling an application. It's someone that's already been working with me for the last month, and we've already cried. We've already yelled at each other. We've already screamed at each other. You know, as boss, employer, employee relationship, and we already got them behind us. And they, they, they look at them and say, "Hey, when you're not incarcerated anymore, I want you to come back and work for me because you're a worker." Uh, you're not some ex-con showing up. I got to guess if you're a good person on an application. Uh, so, I mean, it's really kind of sounds simplistic sometimes, but we got to create the environments and we got to create the institutions. Uh, and as sheriff, that's that's a great part of my job. I have those abilities as, as a sheriff to create those opportunities and see what works. We'll do more of it. What doesn't work, we throw it out. I'm not I'm not so bold to say I don't make stupid mistakes and miss decisions too. And like, that was a good idea, but it didn't work. Throw it out. Let's do something different. Right. Uh, I think that's what leadership's supposed to do. And it is, and it is true, right? You can't judge a book by its cover, right? Uh, yeah. And I, and I know that being someone who has a disability myself, uh, being disabled, okay. I'm Preach often it. judged. The first thing you see when I wheel in the door is the wheels. The right? wheels, right? Right, and no pun intended. I mean, that's what I go by on yeah. the radio. But uh, it, it is true that there's so much more to me and and probably so much more to some of these inmates who, like you said, may have made a stupid mistake and and can end up paying for it for the rest of their life because of the stupid mistake they made. So I I uh, I understand that. And, I, and again, I applaud you for the efforts you're making. Now, I do want to talk to you. You had my good friend. You were part of a uh, uh, fundraising campaign with Roland Williams, I believe, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Champion Academy. Champion Academy, and you had my good friend Deanna King on there. She she I'm makes everything <laughs> better. Let me tell you, man. I I would never want to cross that lady. First of all, <laughs> you know I've been a cop for thirty some years and a soldier. Don't cross Deanna. No, she's tough. Yeah, I sit next to her every Friday. I know. Yeah, you know it. I think she can throw a good elbow. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. She likes to lock my brakes and. Just uh, <laughs> uh, uh, talk to me about the, the that academy and uh, how you got involved with that and and uh, that seemed like a great uh, a great little fundraiser you were doing. Yeah. So first of all, you know why we support the Champion Academy. You know, you look at there's so many things you could do in society. There's so many people that are in need. We've talked about the veterans and and uh, you know Mary and I go overseas to Haiti all the time for missions trips. And so we look for things that are really. We've got so much time and energy and so much resource. Uh, so we look for things that are real and, and really fixing. The Champion Academy is not picking low hanging fruit, if you will. They're picking kids out of the city school district that are failing. Right. They're failing in the city. And they say, we want you to come into the Champion Academy. If you work with us, we will guarantee almost that you will graduate. And they got a hundred percent graduation rate for kids that were failing when they took them in. Ninety-eight percent of those kids don't touch the criminal justice system. 
Think about that, right? They don't see police officers. They don't get involved in the criminal justice system. So it's real world stuff. They're taking they're taking difficult environments and they're making these people into fine young men and women with a high school diploma that that understand just are amazing young kids coming from very difficult, very difficult environments. So we we fell in love with them. I say we, Mary and I, fell in love with that that organization because they're doing real world work. Uh, so we decided to do a fundraiser for them, and Mary put the whole thing together. My wife, and uh, in this world of Zoom, and we can't get together. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, Mary was raised. She rose for the champion with all the work, over forty thousand dollars on a, wow. a simple Zoom meeting because we have friends like Deanna, right? We have friends like Josh Navarro from Channel 8. We have friends like, you know, that are willing, Chief Singletary are willing to come and share their experiences. We just brought a whole bunch of people. We had a, we almost like this wheels. We, we bantered on Zoom uh, for, uh, I forgot, an hour and a half, two hours. And we raised $40,000 for these young kids in the inner city that, uh, that most people would say they don't have a chance in their life, yet they're leaving with high school diplomas, no criminal justice activity, uh, job skills and job training that you would, you you couldn't imagine. So we so appreciate the you know folks like you and folks like Deanna that you know and Weez that, that never stop giving. You know Weez doesn't stop giving. I don't think a day of his life. Yeah, I uh, I the four years I've been with Weez, I've, I've learned I've learned from the best. Right, uh, you you learn that uh, look without the people around us, Sheriff, uh, I wouldn't be Wheels Maxwell. Right, right. If people if people didn't gravitate towards me and and really take to me, uh, I wouldn't be able to, I, I wouldn't have the platform that I had with Weez, first of all, him giving me the opportunity, and then uh, the people gravitating toward me. So you really do have to thank all the people around you, and I think that's what that academy is is uh, showing people, is if we lift people up, Amen. you know, there's diamonds in the rough all over the place, right? Yeah. You just have to find them, and and cultivate them and, and, uh, and give them a hand up and, uh, and help them out. You know, and wheels, I noticed your shirt, you know, and the, the wee shirt. And, you know, I remember listening to them back in the old days when I was growing up and you talked about music and where I got into rock and roll it was probably wheeze. Uh, cause he's a lot older than I am. Uh, but the, the point I'm making is man, no, no. he might be a little, yeah, please do. And Weez might be a little more liberal than I am, you know, and that's no secret. Uh, but boy, the guy is true to his heart. He's true to his thoughts. And, and that's what we want. We want sincerity. We want to sit down and, and even compete with people that have different ideas because it challenges both of us. And Weez has been 100% on target his whole life with, with consistency, I would say, that he's never wavered from what he believes in. And he's never wavered once from what he thinks he needs to say. And he's a community leader because he's everybody knows him. Uh, and he uses that to the benefit of everybody, I think. And you might disagree with his politics or his point of view sometimes. Sometimes I go, what the heck is he talking about? But I do love him and appreciate that he's another person of our community that he's got every right just like I do to, to spout out and say what we believe. Uh, but let's right. sit down and have a conversation. Don't, don't do it on social media, please, because that sounds stupid. <laughs> right. I get in trouble all the time for doing it on social media. <laughs> Just a circular conversation. So real quick, before I let you go, and thank you for doing this uh, with me. This was fun. Uh, I think it was, I think it's important that uh, this uh, podcast, we got to hear from someone who's dealing with the everyday challenges of law enforcement and, and community leadership. And so I appreciate that. But uh, my good friend, Susan Diator, Billy's wife, said to me, Oh, he's he's a uh, he's big into music, and he's a music. Uh, you know, he loves his music. What kind, sheriff? What kind of music can I? If you're in the car, 
uh, and you're just, you know, uh, hanging out. What kind of music are you listening to? And then my second question to that is, are you the kind of guy that sings along to the song? Or do you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely sing along. And, and Mary, she's right here. Come on in, Mary. Come here. Mary does not enjoy Todd singing along, but uh, this is where I keep on talking about her so everybody can see her. Hi, Mary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, slide just a little bit so we could see her. Get in the camera. Get over it. There she is. So, you know, and Billy and I uh, and Mary and, and, and his beautiful wife, Billy, we, we spent a lot of time with a group called Adam Ezra. And, but uh, but, let me tell you right now, he goes live at 7 o'clock every night. So that's who you're competing with on Wednesday Oh, is that? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh -oh. And uh, we got to coordinate. You got to yeah. go live on Thursday, leave Wednesdays to me. I'll well, when we talk to Adam next, we'll tell him that, you know, we got some competition, but you know, we, I just love that grassroots uh, rock and roll. I love uh, some good country music. I, I go back to Loretta Lynn and, and obviously John Cash and things like that. Uh, you know, I grew up with that music with my father rolling the, the records. Uh, you know, I grew up in my Boston, U2, uh, you know, the Stones and the Who were my groups growing up. Uh, and, and I still to this day love music when I'm having a bad day, nothing builds me up. Uh, and I even, you know, I'm a man of faith. Sometimes I'll go to a Christian song or something and listen to old hymn and it just charges me back up and says, all right, that's we're grounded. There's much, I'm much bigger than us, uh, out there. But, uh, you know, uh, Eric church has some great music out later, country music. And, and I had a rocking last night on the way home from a meeting and I, I think my eardrums popped and, uh, you know, so I'm a, it's a variety, but, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, we, we love going to Adam Ezra. That's our new thing. He's our favorite hippie. Uh, by far, he's from Boston, and uh, he loves he loves veterans. When I met Adam, uh, he was doing a show for the Veterans Outreach Center at the Record Archive. Never knew the guy before, and we absolutely fell in love with him. And uh, and we go around the you know watching him all over the places. We're kind of like groupies now for him. Well, that is sheriff. We'll also now, listen, we'll listen to some Aretha Franklin. Oh yeah, and Frank Sinatra also. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Adam Ezra. Now I'm not, I have not seen Adam Ezra. Uh, but he wears no shoes on stage. Am I correct? Every time he wears no shoes. I remember seeing him for the first time. I thought it was odd. And now you'd be disappointed if you've seen him in shoes. He's a, he's a, I mean, I hope he's not taking as a negative, but he's, he reminds me of a hippie from back in the 1960s. That's just enjoying life. He's speaking his mind. He's singing his music and uh, he's building people up. He's always saying, you know, we got to come. Everything you and I have been talking about, you're like, we got to come together. We got to appreciate each other. Uh, throw the politicians out the window, that type of music sometimes. And it's just I, I fun. Will you, I will tell you this, that uh, I, I think I, I think you're also a Susan Tedeschi fan, aren't you, as well? I, Susan Tedeschi? Yeah. Yes. You got to be if you listen to Wheeze, right? Yeah, she's, yeah. I like Mary. her. Mary. <laughs> Mary likes her. Awesome. Airport. Yeah. So do the, the truck. Yeah, the truck's fan. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I didn't know who you were talking about. Concert before. Yeah, in Fairport, I believe. Yeah. Or somewhere. Uh, actually downtown. Downtown. That's why we have Mary here to help you out, Sheriff. You can't remember. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she's standing behind me during campaigns, telling me what to say in the, in my ear. So. There you go. Listen, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to know that you're a country music fan because that's my genre of music. Oh, I didn't I know that. So Eric Church, Luke Combs. Yeah. Uh, I like music that speaks to me. Uh, yeah. And has a good lyric. And most of the time, some of their music talks about drinking beer and, you know, a that too much, right? <laughs> we all like to do that, right? There's nothing wrong with that responsibly. But it also, most of the time, has a good uplifting message and, 
And uh, so maybe you and I'll hit a country concert one of these days there. Uh, yeah, I, I look forward to it anytime and we go only, back. Only if Brother Weez will join you. I'd love to see that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know if I'll get him there. He makes fun of me all the time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Makes yeah. fun of me all the time. Sheriff, thank you. And, and Mary, thank you so much for doing this for me. I appreciate it. And let me just say this to you. Uh, please know that when times get tough and things are written on social media about you and and uh, some nasty things about people from people that don't even know you. Know that you always have a fan in me uh, because uh, you've been nothing but kind to me and doing this for me. And if, if any way I can ever help you out uh, in the future, please let me know and I'd be glad to do it. And I'm going to become a subscriber to the podcast. Thank you. And behind uh, the badge, <laughs> behind the badge. And I'm going to support that and promote it. And, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you over a Rolling with Wheels T-shirt, and you send me a Ballas Baxter T-shirt. Oh, hey, can I say one thing? Yeah, go ahead. Whoever said that? He's not Ballas. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you, ordered, you ordered from the you ordered from the boss. I don't know how to respond. <laughs> yeah. I, I Call me. Call me. <laughs> Beat that Wheels. <laughs> In my profession, you're not supposed to be speechless, but I'm over speechless. No, you're supposed to want to get up out of your chair and walk. Would you just move over? That's awesome. I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm, I don't know if you can see I'm blushing right now. but uh, I'm right in the face myself. <laughs> All right, Sheriff. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. And, love uh, you, brother. Absolutely. And, uh, we be, love you, Wheels. Uh, thank you so much. I will be... Uh, sending you a text message so that I can get uh, some information from you. But like I said, if there's ever anything I can do for you in the future, uh, don't hesitate to call. If there's anything you ever want to promote, we'll have you back on the podcast or fundraising efforts. Let me know. I'm there for you. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Wednesdays with Wheels with Monroe County Sheriff Todd Baxter. It's been great. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up. Uh, next week, we're doing a episode with some folks from Cure for Cancer, uh, some of their fundraising efforts. Uh, the week after that, I believe, we're actually, Eric, listen to this, we're actually having somebody on from the hit NBC TV show, The West Wing. I don't know if oh, you really? ever saw that, but we're going to have somebody on from The West Wing. So Good that's great. And uh, so I hope you guys have enjoyed this. Sheriff, thank you very much. And this has been Wednesdays with Wheels. We'll see you real soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.